Um, good morning. My name is Will McDavid, and I'm on staff with Mockingbird. This morning, I am privileged to introduce our first speaker, the Reverend Paul Walker. He has had a vital role in Mockingbird since the beginning when he served as its founding president. And I first heard this message of gospel from Paul Walker while I was an undergraduate at the University of Virginia. And about six years later, still at his church, and he still ministers to me every day, serves as an intellectual mentor, a counselor, and a constant source of inspiration, as well as a major support for the organization. Um, so we're so glad he's here, and please join me in welcoming Paul Walker. Thank you, McDave. So what I have, I think, to offer this morning, I hope in many ways, resonates with what we've heard from uh, the brothers Zoll and overlaps in ways uh, because uh, Mockingbird does have one message. Uh, we come at it from different perspectives, but again, the life-giving message to which we'll kindly refer there is the same message of God's grace. And this talk is called the chimera of identity in an anxious world. And then uh, a month or so ago when Dave Zoll and I were coming up with the title of this talk, we tried to add some kind of hopeful addendum like the chimera, chimera of identity and the hope of the gospel or identity in an anxious world and the freedom of grace. But it looks like we're left with chimera and anxiety. So welcome to Mockingbird 2014. Which is not to say that there is no hope in this conference, of course there is, or this talk. But this talk, at least, uh, the help comes mainly in diagnostic form. Our friend Dorothy Martin says that true maturity is not necessarily solving and dispatching one's inner conflicts, neuroses, and ghosts, but rather just being aware of them. And uh, it's interesting, I come just personally right now uh, with a struggle uh, in my own identity. I'm about to turn 50, and I am the rector of a, at least an Episcopal a church, um, demographics of a fairly large church, and I'm struggling with how to inhabit the identity of the rector of a church without it completely consuming me uh, as a person. So I'm... I'm sort of coming to you today with not many answers, but more one struggling in the kind of pit of what is happening in my own life. You know, those who preached are admonished regularly to, not to raise up more snakes in the sermon than they can kill, and that may be a good maxim. But when it comes to the serpentine nature of identity, I'm afraid I'm mostly bereft of the weaponry needed to slay the beast. And that's because, as uh, John has said in Dave 2, identity is so dang slithery and slippery. Chimeric, actually, which is the title of this talk. Uh, chimera, you may know in Greek mythology, is a monster composed of disparate parts, a lion's head, a goat's body, and a serpent's or a snake's tail. 
And a chimera in our modern usage describes an unreal creature of the imagination, vain, idle, uh, not tethered to any, any kind of reality, or as John said last night, phony. Identity brings together the uses of chimera, I think, because we are a thousand disparate parts, picking, choosing, discarding, using whatever we wish to show the world, or more accurately, I think, whatever we are compelled by our conflicts, neuroses, and ghosts to show the world. And that we pull something from out of our sleeve to show others suggests the second use of chimera. It's all smoke and mirrors. It's an illusion. Songwriter Nico Case sings a song about identity called That's Who I Am. And she says, that's who I am, a thousand percent illusion. Not 50%, not 100% illusion, that's who I am, a thousand percent illusion. Now here's something interesting to me. When Pete Townsend wrote the 2014 Mockingbird conference title, which also doubled as a Who song that Dave talked about last night in 1973, the world didn't yet bandy about the term postmodernism in the way that it does now. Uh, the, the very question, can you see the real me, presupposes a real me to see. It may be hidden, it may be protected, it may be undiscovered, it may be ignored, but it's there, down there, somewhere. But 40 years later, when Nico Case writes her 2013 song, postmodernism has so thoroughly worked its dark charms that there is no real me to see, and that's who I am. Instead, what's down there is a thousand percent illusion. Just so you know, I believe that uh, many of the postmodern insights are deeply helpful to the discovery of the real gospel. And I also believe, though, that there is a real me uh, to find. And I do believe that there's a Christian message spoken directly to the real me. It's just that its emergence may require major deconstruction, just as John said, major deconstruction and if, in fact, the Bible is right about this, it will actually require the second coming of Christ. And that I'll say about uh, some more later. But for now, I want to get on to some deconstruction. Because that we are in the 24-hour-a-day business of projecting an identity to the world is almost too obvious to mention, much less dwell on. Just think vineyard vines. And when I was in uh, middle school, it was alligator shirts and Levi's that had red tags. We have a set of pictures uh, that Christy called out on our refrigerator. And they are all of me in various identities through the years. It's kind of humiliating. People like to look at them and laugh. And I can only laugh, too, after I finish crying. So I will... Um, expose myself in the right way and uh, tell you about them. 
I was a preppy kid growing up, uh, but then in high school, I decided to become Jim Morrison, the lead singer of The Doors. I really tried to assume his identity, and I went full days quoting his lyrics to people in response to normal questions. <laughs> How's it going, Paul? No one here gets out alive. <laughs> I'm okay. During the same time, my friend Andrew Rollins, who was last year's chap chaplain to Mockingbird, became Robert Plant. We're both Episcopal ministers now, which tells you that the system clearly does not work. Then in the early 80s uh, came uh, New Wave, the New Wave uh, appeal, and I had the right hair for Duran Duran, and uh, I purchased the parachute pants, and then I met Christy, who was and still is very earthy, and then all of a sudden out came the beard, and I'm dressed entirely in hemp, and uh, that Birkenstocks are very ugly, only added to the appeal. And in the early 90s, we decided to buy all our clothes, Christy and I, at thrift shops in order to save the world. And uh, noble, maybe, but the effect was unfortunate. I grew my hair out and wore a headband. <laughs> you know, I could not understand my mother's dismay when I showed up to go to her very traditional Episcopal church dressed in black jeans and a black t-shirt. But mother, it's the real me. <laughs> Don't be so superficial. Anyway, I'm Bono, uh, so <laughs> the poor woman. Anyway, enough of this. You have your own pictures on your own refrigerators, or if you're smart uh, enough, they're hidden away. Of course, there's nothing wrong with fashion or with self-expression, but, you know, this is why we're here. What happens when the real me is buried under the false constructions of the self? You know, what happens when the alligator shirt is just a stand-in for an ever-changing grocery list of identities marching into your 20s, your 30s, your 40s, up into your 80s? Uh, I read a lot of obituaries in my profession and talk about a projection of identities right on past the crematorium. Now, what if we have lost sight of the real me in the image factory of the self from the cradle to the grave. Well, clearly we cannot stake our life on an illusion. And as we mature, we may more ably recognize the false fronts that we project to the world, maybe. But there are two more dangerous misconceptions of the real me that I want to address in this talk. And the first is a fairly widespread. The first is the deep sense of shame that uh, Dave, in fact, talked about last night, uh, but the deep sense of shame that many people experience when they consider who they actually are. And this, of course, uh, makes the real me uh, have to be hidden behind the false projections because we are so deeply afraid of being exposed in our shame of the real me. The Onion, as usual, isn't afraid of this painful subject, a recent headline. 
87% of man's memories are shame-based, stating that the man is rarely able to reflect on events from earlier in his life without visibly wincing. Sources confirmed Monday that 87% of local medical claims professor Tyler Collins' memories are rooted in emotions of shame, humiliation, and guilt. According to all accounts, nearly nine-tenths of all recollections Collins brings to mind, including moments from his first relationship, proposals he made at a recent work meeting, comments uttered in sophomore year English class, instantly flood the 37-year-old's mind with the same feelings of regret and self-disgust that were present when he first experienced those situations days or years ago. At press time, reports confirmed that Collins had paused what he was doing, closed his eyes, and began rubbing his temple while berating himself softly under his breath. <laughs> funny and not funny, <laughs> like awkward. Uh, because uh, if you are somebody who in fact lives out of this shame, well, the percentage is actually higher than 87%, and more on this in a minute. But the other uh, dangerous misconception goes in the opposite direction. And it's this, and this is sort of what I'm struggling with right now. It's when we believe that our chosen identities are not chimeric, but are solid and good, and actually who we are, who the real me is. You know, a, a Virginian or a Princeton man or a libertarian or an Episcopalian or a grandmother or a doctor of philosophy. You know, you have your own versions. You know what I mean. Or you could be the responsible son. Or you are the one who is full of integrity. Or you are the one who always gives of herself. Or you have some other virtue that's related to your character. Now the problem as you get older is that sometimes these identities calcify and that you think that you become your own projected version of your real me. We have a dog uh, at the Walker House and he's a mix between a blue tick hound and a blue healer. And in a burst of creativity, we decided to name him Blue. Blue's older now. He's, he's 11. And uh, he's getting really crank, cranky. He's getting crankier as he gets older. And in fact, when we took him to the vet a few weeks ago, he had to be muzzled for the first time in his life because uh, he tried to bite the vet. And the vet said that Blue, uh, as he aged, was what was happening is that his blue healer identity rather than his blue tick hound identity. His blue healer identity was coming to the fore. And blue healers, you may know, are herders. And so they snap with their, with their snouts. They snap and they bite. And uh, he said, as blue gets older, we have to be very careful with him around people because he just gets crankier uh, as he gets older. And I thought, hmm. Doesn't that sound like a lot of old men you know or a lot of bitter old women that you know that you need to quarantine uh, as they get older because they just their, their blue healer comes out. Now, all of these identities that um, we, we go through the world, we have, to, we have to present as something. 
they, they may not be bad in themselves, but it's just that these identities uh, are more like shifting sand than they are solid rock. And even calcified identities uh, may be taken away from you by hook or by crook, by disease. The diagnosis means that you're no longer a healthy person, but you're a cancer sufferer. By divorce, uh, you are now an ex-husband, an ex-wife. Uh, by arrest, you are no longer an elementary school teacher. You are a child pornographer. Uh, by um, pink slip, by being fired, you are no longer the head of this institution. You are out of work. And so, you know, more innocuous causes uh, can can erode the identities that you believe to be solid and good and firm. But the thing is that when you stake your life on something that is supposed to be penultimate rather than ultimate, secondary, tertiary, not the final thing, well, you find that when it dissolves and you're standing on this thing, well, you dissolve. And you've got nothing left. And you've got nowhere to go. This is exactly what happened to poor 20-year-old Quentin Compson in The Sound and the Fury. Quentin had staked his life on his identity as a strong southern man who takes care of the women in his life. And when his sister, Caddy, whom he loves, becomes a fallen woman, which is in itself another impregnable uh, identity marker. Quentin confronts the older, stronger man who is responsible for Caddy's out-of-wedlock pregnancy. And in the scene, he meets Dalton Ames, who is this man, on a bridge. And he gives him till sundown to leave the town. Dalton, of course, refuses. And when Dalton refuses, Quentin, right there on the bridge, tries to hit Dalton. But he tries unsuccessfully. Dalton catches his fist. And Quentin actually faints in the process, falling down at Dalton's feet on the bridge. And Dalton tries to help Quentin up. But, of course, his kindness is received as condescension. And then to make things worse, Caddy, his sister whom he loves, shows up and reprimands her brother rather than thanking him, reprimands him for meddling in her affairs. And Quentin, because of this moment, is totally humiliated, and he is completely stripped of what he deemed to be his core identity. What he thought was his real me was, in fact, shown to be a chimera, a phony, a fraud, shifting sand. So in his mind... Nothing is left for Quentin but suicide. And after his return to Harvard and Caddy's hurried wedding to another man, Quentin records his final day in the second section of The Sound and the Fury as he prepares to jump into the Charles River with two six-pound weights in his suit pockets. And here are his final thoughts as his identity dissolves. 
He remembers lying awake at night obsessing about his sister and his cowardice in this moment when, quote, the whole thing came to symbolize night and unrest. I seem to be lying neither asleep nor awake, looking down a long corridor of gray half-light where all stable things had become shadowy, paradoxical. All I had done, shadows. All I had felt, suffered, taking visible form, antic and perverse, mocking without relevance, inherent themselves with the denial of the significance they should have affirmed, thinking, I was, I was not, who was not, was not, who? Who am I? He then jumps from the bridge to settle in the shifting sand of the Charles River bottom. Who am I? Who is the real me? The point I'm making with Quentin Compson here is that there, in fact, may be dire consequences for confusing who the real me is that we need to be wary of making the mistake of thinking our shifting sand is our solid rock. And to get to that solid rock, we need just a little more deconstructive work. And I like the trajectory of postmodern thought because it detaches us from the shifting sand that rationalism takes to be the solid rock, identities that cannot bear the weight of our anxiety of life, the anxiety of just living. And you should be very anxious, shouldn't you? Anxiety is a good thing. You should be very anxious if you are standing on thin ice, literal thin ice. That's a normal response. We long for certainty. It's just got to be the right certainty, not a chimera, but something that is solid. There's a good reason that we sing at Christ Church, on Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is shifting sand. Terry Eagleton is a British literary theorist who, by all accounts, is not a Christian or a believer, but from what he writes, sure seems to fall under Jesus' category of he who is not against us is for us. And I don't actually know much about him, but I did read a powerful new essay he wrote called unbelieving age, Nietzsche's challenge, and the Christian response. And in it, he says this. Nietzsche scorns what he calls the, quote, longing for certainty of science and rationalism, an itch for an epistemological assurance behind which it is not hard to detect a deep-seated anxiety of spirit. In his view, the compulsion to believe is for those who are too timid to exist in the midst of ambiguities without anxiously reaching out for some copper-bottomed truth. 
The desire for religion is the craving for an authority whose emphatic thou shalt will relieve us of our moral and cognitive insecurity. Well, there's the description of the anxious world longing for certainty. But now finally, what is the Christian response to that longing? Well, the message, I believe, paradoxically, is not so much copper-bottom truth, but it is instead the deconstructive work taken to the max, which is the very death of our own identities. DZ talked about this last night, the very death of our own identities. Again, I'll let Eagleton do the heavy lifting here. He says, the death of God, which is what Nietzsche was about, the death of God involves the death of man, the death of you and me, along with the birth of a new form of humanity. The incarnation is the place where both God and man undergo a kind of kenosis or self-humbling, symbolized by the self-dispossession of Christ. He says, only through this tragic self-emptying can a new humanity hope to emerge. Only through a confession of loss and failure can the very meaning of power be transfigured into the miracle of the resurrection. Hmm. Sounds a lot like the St. Paul passage that Dave Zoll quoted last night. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and he gave himself for me. The real me rises from the ashes of our false identities like a phoenix. The real me rises like a phoenix from the ashes of our false identities. To get to the real me, we might just need to pray to God, come on baby, light my fire. On the other hand, don't bother praying because your life is incendiary enough. We should all be born with warning labels saying caution, highly combustible. Who is the real me? When scripture tells us that the Lord does not see as mortals see, they look on the outward appearance, the Lord looks on the heart. Well, this just means that not only can we not see others in the right way. We can't even see ourselves in the right way. We, we don't even know who the real me is. We can't see it. 
But what does God see when he sees the real me? I can tell you one thing. One thing he doesn't see is shame. Because grace has taken away the shame. I've got no shame. You may see shame in your real me, but you are gravely mistaken. And more than that, the Bible says that your life is hidden in Christ. And if your real me is hidden in Christ, you are hidden in the purest, safest, strongest love there is. And that same passage actually says that we will stay hidden until Christ comes back. And then and only then will we be fully revealed. But in the meantime, well, there may be some dying and some rising to be done. But you're not doing it. It's done all by the grace of God. And in contrast to Quentin Compson's dissolved despair of, I was, I was not, who was not, was not, who. I will close this talk with a verse from a hopeful hymn, and it's the new one by you 2 called Invisible, a song very much about the chimera of identity in an anxious world, and a song delivering the Christian hope. Bono sings, I finally found my real name. I won't be me when you see me again. No, I won't be my father's son. I'm more than you know. I'm more than you see here. More than you let me be. I'm more than you know. A body and a soul. You can't see me. But I am not invisible. I am here. I am here. Thank you.